John chapter one, excuse me, beginning in verse one, John continues his, his cosmic poem of the person of Jesus. He says, he was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him being Jesus. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity to gather once again with your people to sit underneath the scriptures and ask you, uh, would you just guide us and lead us? God, not just to remember the work that you've done, not only to look forward to the work that you'll be doing in this world in the future, but just to carve out space in the middle of this year towards the end of 2023 um, to look for the ways that you want to arrive into our lives right here and right now. And so we pray you do just that. Uh, would you help us, um, God, to receive, to recognize, to believe these words that John uses in our passage today, um, the identity of Jesus, and in doing so to find our own. In your name we pray, amen. We'll go and be seated. Now, last week we began by talking about how kind of disruptive, weird maybe is the best word it can be, to uh, enter into kind of the Christmas season and you come into a church and not to have like Matthew or Luke's nativity, you know, stories. You know, where's the manger? Where's Mary? I need angels. I need shepherds. I need wise men. Where are they? Instead, you give me like he was recognized, not known. What are we doing here? And we were just talking about how what's going on here is that John is telling that same story of what Christmas is all about, but from a different perspective. Matthew and Luke are telling their story from the ground up, all of the stories of Mary and the shepherds. John is telling his story from the top down. He's beginning with this cosmic story of the God who created all things entering into the story. And so as they're telling two stories from the same perspective, they inevitably say many of the same things but often in a different way. So just notice, like right now, if we were gonna flip over and read Matthew and Luke's nativity stories, what you would probably assert to me, and rightly so, is that Christmas is about God in Jesus being born into the world, right? But when we just read John chapter 10, specifically in verse 12, we would assert that Christmas is not necessarily or just about God being born to the world. It is just as much about you, about us being born to God. And so there's this dynamic here where Matthew and John and Luke are all telling the same story, but they're telling it from uniquely different perspectives. And it's how you end up getting a theology of Christmas that gets repeated in um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, what we just sang. Here's, here's one of the lines right here. This is Matthew and Luke and John. When you put them together, you get, uh, sorry, not that passage. Uh, do, did I not make a slide for Hark the Herald Angels Sing? I think it's titled Hark. There it is. Mild he lit. That was my problem. I shouldn't have labeled it as Hark. Um, so we just sang this a moment ago. Mild, he lays his glory by, born. There is God being born to us in Christ. The man no more may die, born to raise the sons of our earth, born to give them second birth. So Christmas is just as much about Jesus, God being born to us, as us being born, as cliche as it may be to some, born again to God. And so you just have this, these two little stories here that come together as Jesus being born to us and us being born to God. And this is one story, but being told from two different perspectives. How are we doing so far? 
Good. Now, what this does, though, is this introduces us into this tension as this is happening in the world. Because once again, Matthew, Luke, you go and read their stories, and they're the nativity ones that you all know and love. So in Luke's gospel, Jesus is born and laid into a manger, stinky stable. Why? Because there was no room available for them, either at the inn or the guest room, depending on how you translate it. He was unwelcomed. He was unexpected, and, and so there was no room for him. Matthew's gospel, shortly after Jesus is born, the king at the time, Herod, uh, unleashes a massacre on uh, young boys under the age of two, trying to extinguish out, to end the life of this incoming, this new heir. Once again, unreceived and unwelcomed. Matthew and Luke tell their story that as the light, as God comes into the world, he's unreceived and unwelcomed. And what does John say in verse 10 and 11? He was in the world, and the world was created through him. The world did not recognize him. He was laid in a stable. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He was, he was laid in a manger. Do you see that John and Luke, once again, I'm just trying to show you here, that we're, we're, we're having the same story being told from two different perspectives. But all of this does bring up a, a question, a problem, maybe, at least for me, in reading it over this week, which is in verse 10. If Jesus is the creator God coming into the world, why did the world not recognize him? Or as he gets more specific in verse 11, if Jesus is the God of Israel incarnate, if he is the awaited Messiah, why didn't his own people, the people of Israel, why didn't they receive him? If Jesus is who John claims him to be, why did he go unrecognized and unreceived? Why the need for what's been called evangelism? There's a bunch of you here that work on staff for, for Jews for Jesus, right? The ministry that's seeking to bring the message of Jesus to people who ethnically belong to, culturally belong to, to Jesus. Why, why does Jews for Jesus exist? Not just because Isaac needs a job, like, but because, what? His own people did not receive him. And so it just leaves a question, well, well why? It's a question that continues to all of us today. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, if Jesus is who John claims him to be, why doesn't anybody recognize or receive him as such? Why do so many not, right? It's a question that hangs over not just our day and age, but it was one of the first kind of crucial questions in the early church, specifically looking at the people of Israel and why do all these Jewish people who were waiting for the Messiah, he finally gets here and none of them, and so that's one of the themes, great themes of John's gospel in particular, is if you were to sit down and read through John's gospel this week, what you would find is time and again, people coming face to face with Jesus, even experiencing miracles, and yet leaving without receiving or recognizing him. It's this theme that continues, one that we could trace all over the place, but I want to introduce you into kind of my working theory, okay? Which is, I believe, in many ways, that as John is setting up these first 18 verses as all of his, his book in like seed form, is that here in verse 13, John actually gives us a distillation of why people don't recognize or receive Jesus. Verse 13, when he talks about what being born of God, what believing in Jesus is not, he says it does not come of natural descent, the will of the flesh, or the will of man. Now, most of us, and rightly so, read this as though John is saying that the mechanics of this new birth 
are not like the mechanics of your first one a couple decades ago, right? It's not natural descent. You weren't, it was not, right? Hopefully we don't have to get into that too much. There's a couple of people in the room that have just graduated out of the kids ministry. So I'm, I'm, I'm I'm towing through this right now, but I hope you understand what I'm getting at. So on one level, John could be speaking that this second birth, the mechanics are not the same as your first birth, but I honestly think that in comparing and contrasting those two things, he's also identifying these three sources of why people don't receive or recognize Jesus. Why else would he pair it with verses 10 and 11? How are we, does this make sense a little bit of just what these three things are and why people don't recognize or receive him? He's identifying that your natural descent, the will of the flesh, we'll talk about what all each of these are in a moment, and the will of man, when these become in a sense, the primary way that you perceive yourself, present yourself to the world, and process reality, when they become your capital I identity, they become a block to you seeing the identity of Jesus. Does this make sense now, where we're, where we're developing here, where we're going today? Because that's, in studying over this passage, what is John doing here? Why does he pair all these things together? I think what he's trying to do is he's uniquely tying up the identity of Jesus and our identity in the ways that we perceive ourselves and our either ability or inability to perceive Jesus. And so he goes after these three because in the ancient world, your natural descent, the will of the flesh, once again, we'll talk about this in a moment, and the will of man were the primary ways that you self-identify, that you understand who you were. The first being natural descent, your family of origin, your tribe, your ethnicity would be the language, your culture. Like before you were anything else, you were a member, this is collectivist societies, you were a member of your, your group, of your family, of your tribe. And throughout history, all these different Roman historians and Greek historians looking in at the Jewish people identified the Jewish collectivist identity as the strongest in the world. Like they had a, before you were anything else or anyone else, you were an Israelite. And so the primary way that you moved through life was the primary way that you perceived yourself was as being a member of the family of Israel. Your primary form of self-expression was, was done through the Mosaic law and through Sabbath and through the Ten Commandments and through the script. Like that was how you presented yourself to the world. And so you processed reality largely in terms of insider versus Gentile versus Samaritan. Strong collectivist identity, strong group identity around, around their Jewishness, around their family descent, their natural descent. And so what's interesting is when you find Jesus then coming on the scene and people not receiving him or not recognizing him, one of the key problems that we have in their own words is that Jesus is either too Jewish or not Jewish enough to be the one that they're waiting for. In, in one of the stories, in the midst of Jesus' teaching and miracles, people go, we know who this guy is. We know who his mom was. We know his brothers. He's, he's just like us. Ergo, because he's an insider, he can't actually be the Messiah that we're waiting for. They could only see him through the insider or outsider film, lens. And then similarly, on the other side, a little bit later on into his ministry, when they begin to notice that he doesn't keep Sabbath the way that we do, not just beyond within the Mosaic commands, but even within the Pharisee kind of, you know, religious cultural expectations. He doesn't keep Sabbath like we do. And so they labeled him then as an outsider or as a Samaritan. He's not one of us. So the thing is that Jesus, though, 
It's not that he's anti-natural descent. Jesus was born Jewish. It's not that he was anti-Moses. As we're going to read next week, Jesus sees himself coming as the one who, who adds on to and grows out of the Mosaic law, out, out of the ethnicity and the story and the culture of, of Judaism, of Israel. So it's not that he's anti. So why, why do they not receive him? Why do they not recognize Jesus? Because their cultural identity was so strong, was so central to their sense of self that they could only engage with anyone, including Jesus, as either insider or outsider, as either with us or against us. And so they didn't hold any capacity that when God comes into the world, the reality that that person coming into the world may simultaneously fulfill every aspect of good and beauty within our ethnicity and our culture and our tribe while transcending it. He may be all of us and yet more of us. And when you're playing insider or outsider, it, it, it breaks the system. You just won't see him. The next aspect that blinded them from recognizing Jesus was the will of the flesh. Now this one needs, I'm sorry, but a little bit of, of, of explanation here. Because most of us, we hear the will of the flesh and you think sinful desire, like the, the sinful will, right? The, the bad things that you want. And that's Paul's fault, not necessarily his fault. But <laughs> Paul, in his, in his letters, when he uses language of the flesh or the will of the flesh, it's his little catchphrase, his way of talking about sinful desires, selfish things that we, we chase after, that we long for. And John just, he's, he's, he's a different, he's not, he's not Paul. And in his primary way, when he uses this word flesh, is not to talk about the morality of our desires or decisions, but the source of them. They're human, as opposed to spirit, is, is the big contrast that he makes throughout his gospel. And so, one of, again, one of the primary ways that we what? We perceive ourselves, we view ourselves, we then self-express, and we present ourselves to the world, and we process reality is through our natural decision-making, our natural desires, what we want, what we chase after, and we long for. And so once again, when Jesus shows up on the scene, what are the primary things that he runs into is people don't receive him or recognizing him. Jesus specifically says to them, after they reject him, the main issue is you judge with human standards. Why are you rejecting me? You're judging me based off human standards. Literally, you are judging me by the flesh. You're judging me based off of your wishes, your desires for who I am and what I'm here to do. And so of course, you're going to reject me. As he says a little bit earlier, when it comes to the life that I've come to bring, the flesh cannot help. Only the spirit can bring life. So, but again, just like with his natural descent, it's not that Jesus is anti-flesh, anti-human. Just if you have your Bible open, right after we just read up to verse 13, look where we begin next week. Verse 14, the word what? Became flesh. So it's not that Jesus is anti-flesh, but when that becomes the central core operating system for how you think about yourself, how you engage in the world, it blinds you from seeing Jesus fully because Jesus is always either going to be either affirming or denying the will of the flesh. And you're always gonna be looking for, is Jesus on my side and what I want and my desires and my ambitions or is he against me? And what we don't keep out the space or open up is the reality that if God entered into the world, he might simultaneously affirm and meet my deepest desires while leading me to them through the denial of my loudest ones. And so this is, this is the blindness. Why don't we recognize Jesus? Because I'm looking for him to either affirm or deny. And what if, what if, if God was gonna enter the world, it would probably be a little bit of both. 
And then finally, this goes from here into the will of man as the third kind of foundational piece of ancient identity. Now, the will of man sounds like he's repeating himself. If the will of flesh is just like the will of humanness, then the will of man just sounds like he's repeating himself. But the word here isn't the word for human. It's the word for uh, husband. It's the word for head of the household. And so here we are, once again, we're remembering that we're reading a text from 2,000 years ago. Where in the ancient world, one of the patriarchal society, one of the primary frameworks through how you perceived yourself, presented yourself, and processed reality was in terms of who's your man? Either who is your, in the case of, for most women, either your father or your husband, or for most men, either as a child, your father, or still your father. It continued through that. And so one of the primary ways that you perceived yourself was, how am I doing in my relationship with my, my man, so to speak, my father or my husband? How am I doing in the relationship there? The primary way that I gave myself expression was in terms of what are the desires of my, my father or my husband? And you processed reality in terms of the relationship of how people perceived your man through your behavior and through your relationship to them. And so what's wild, once again, is when we find people rejecting Jesus, even though they see him right up close, is one of the primary things that they go after. One of the primary sources of why they reject him is the great root of like the, the like patriarchy of Israel. And I'm not using that in like a, a, like as a historical word, not necessarily as like a whatever one. Um, you know what I mean. Just historical like lineage, that it all went back and had its root in Abraham. Abraham was the man that every man was like, you know, submitted under and every woman was all part of. At the head of it all, at the root of it all was Abraham. And so when people reject and they will not receive Jesus, it's over Abraham. So when he starts teaching and he's telling them, come to me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have freedom, come with me. What they say is, we're sons of Abraham. How dare you say that we need truth? We're sons of, of Abraham. How dare you say that we need freedom? Because his claims of an invitation was always then taken as a jab against their man. Similarly, when Jesus is teaching and he begins to step into naming who he actually is to clear the way so they can see his identity, his divinity, what is their thing that they, they say? They go, are you saying you're better than Abraham? How dare you? So the whole point is when their identity was so fixated on their man that anybody that came into it, they, they just could not see Jesus. He's either submitting to him with us or he's subverting our whole family tree. Once again, unable to just imagine the possibility that if God were going to come into the world, he would simultaneously be a part of that lineage while also saying, I pre-existed it. I am the true one at the top, at the root of all of humanity, regardless of how we divide ourselves socially. So bringing all this out, it's wild how, here we are a millennia removed, um, we're a good chunk of change removed, and yet many of these key aspects definitely have changed, but continue within us today. When you get to know people as a pastor, conversations with people who either have trouble seeing Jesus and are working through their questions or are walking away from him, is it usually comes down to these three. Natural descent, which again, now can take not just ethnicity and culture, but even within our kind of age and the way that those are so overlapping is even like political party and our tribe, our cultural understandings. Is once again, is Jesus an insider or an outsider? to the way that we see things, the way we do things, the values that we have. 
And as long as we're trying to look to sort Jesus in, we just simply will not see him. The will of the flesh continues today as the prime, one of the primary ways that we seek self-expression and self-perception. Who am I and what does it mean for my desires and my choices to be the thing that, that I build? And once again, if that is the running theme for your life, the undergirding foundation of your decision-making and self-perception, you'll never be able to see Jesus because you'll always be wondering, is he affirming or is he denying? You never let Jesus be Jesus and let him invite you into what he's inviting you into. You're always the one that's in charge. And now while patriarchy is on decline, to put it one way, uh, <laughs> the, the reality is, is that in, in subverting in the West, in our culture, in subverting patriarchy is that we haven't replaced it with anything necessarily other than just the patriarchy of the self. And what I mean by that is, is simply that what our individualistic Western culture has said is, oh, the answer to patriarchy is every single person becoming the self-arbiter of their own life. Um, and so the primary opinion that matters is not some man, but, but each individual and your own. What do you want? What do you want to chase after? What do you want to go for? And so the primary thing that becomes is, is any statement that Jesus makes, like the Israelites, like, how dare you go against Abraham? Any statement or invitation that Jesus makes is we take that as, how dare you speak against me? How dare you, Jesus, come and tell me how to live my life? How dare you say that I need freedom, I need truth, I need light, as though I'm walking in the darkness and slave? Like, how dare you, Jesus? Why? Because we're always looking. Is Jesus either a submissive partner and helper to my, deci my decisions and my ambitions, or is he subverting it all, seeking to, to break it down? So this is where, again, I think this is what John is getting at before we even get into the story of Jesus. He's, he's bringing the whole story of his gospel and he's bringing it together in these three themes as these are the reason why people will not receive or recognize Jesus. Their identity, their capital I identity is foundationally rooted in these things. We talk all the time right now about bias, about the ways that your story and your history, your makeup, your relationships, your roles, the things that you go through in life, how they can blind you from processing reality truly. You can miss certain things just because of the way that you were raised. Certain nuances and moments and details of your life you can miss because you just, your identity has biased you to view things in a certain way. John would agree with all that and say, yes, but there's the much graver danger is that you can have an identity that so blinds you, not just in a bias against other people and against the world or perceiving yourself. You can have a bias that keeps you from seeing God even if he was walking around with you unable to see God in the midst because you're always looking. Is he affirming? Is he denying? Is he an insider or an outsider? Is he subverting all of my decisions and ambitions or is he submitting to them? We'll never see Jesus this way. Those of you that have been around for collective, you just know this is a repeated like bell that I ring. Like at least three or four times a year, you get this sermon basically repeated over and over again. Whether it's stretch Armstrong Jesus, build a bearer, like build a Jesus workshop, like all of these different aspects of the ways in which what we primarily do, what keeps us from seeing Jesus, is when we impose our identity on him rather than allowing his identity be impressed upon ours. And so it blinds us. Our identity becomes these filters of the me that I've made that block us from seeing God for who he truly is, even if he took on flesh and, and dwelt among us. So what's interesting, though, is what, what John does is that would be a really bad sermon if it ended there. <laughs> Have a good week. Um, but John holds out for us as he says, though in verse 10, he was not recognized. Verse 11, he was not received. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him. 
that though so many don't receive and don't recognize, there are some who do receive, which he says and, and equates with, and just a little bit further in verse 12, those who believe in his name. To receive him is to believe in his name. It's to believe in his identity. So do you see the difference between me being blocked up by my identities of seeing Jesus to receive him is for me to believe in his identity and his name. Now, believe is a mess right now because it's just like a word that means nothing because it means everything. I say believe, half of you think about Ted Lasso and you're just thinking about that yellow sign. And so believe just means like general, there it is. You're like, yeah, believe in his name, right? Like that's what it is, right? It's general optimism is what most of us think. Like I'm, I'm genuinely optimistic about Jesus is kind of what we take that as. Or very, very like, common within the church is that we believe to believe in his name is merely a mental like assent. Oh yeah, Jesus is who he said he is. Right, mental assent. Yeah, yeah, I, I know that, I, I get that. I think Jesus is God or, or whatever is like normally how it goes. But to believe in his name, both here in this passage and throughout the course of John and the rest of the scriptures, to believe in his name is to undergo the experience of an entire reorientation of your very identity, which is why it gets called a new birth, which why it gets called being born again. It's a, a new reality, a new self-perception, a new way of self-expression, a new way of perceiving and processing through the world. It's an entirely new way of existing that begins as an inward transformation brought about through the Spirit of God. This is what it means to believe. So is trust part of that? 100%. Allegiance to him? 100%. But John would say, believe more than anything else. To believe in his name is a reorientation of your identity now being filled up and around and through Jesus' identity, through his person, through his work, through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his sending of the Spirit, and his coming return. That that becomes the primary framework through which you now perceive yourself, present yourself, and process reality. Now, one thing that has to be said here, though, about this receiving of a new identity is that this does not come at the erasure of your old ones. There's been many who've said, your identity be in Christ or to be in Jesus means that you're nothing but like in Jesus. As, I, I'm, as a human, when I became a Christian, I didn't move into a vacuum. I don't mean like vacuum. I mean like a place with nothing else, right? There were some of you that like had a face, like, what do you mean move into a vacuum? So I just wanted to help for you guys. He's like, you just moved into a Hoover. Uh, it would be a Dyson, guys. I'm better than that. Um, I want, that's my Christmas list, Aaron, is a new vacuum cleaner. Anyway, um, so the whole point is, when I, be, when I believe into Jesus, I do not move into a world apart from all of my pre-existing roles and relationships and passions and things that excite me. When I became a Christian, I, my, like Star Wars is a part of somewhere on the, like the, the rubric of Ryan's identity did not disappear. My relationship to my parents as a son, to my uh, siblings as a brother, to my wife as a husband, my children as father, all of those are still crucial pieces of my identity. It's not that those go away or don't matter to me anymore. My, my desires, the things that I long for, the things that I want, the relationships, my dreams, my past, it's not that any of those things get erased when we enter into this new birth and new identity, it's they get radically reoriented around Jesus now rather than the other way around. Because the primary problem that we just talked about was me viewing all of my little identity pieces through them to look at Jesus and I could never see Jesus. 
But the invitation of the gospel is that when I put Jesus as the lens through which I view the rest of my life and my identities, then I'm able to see all of those things rightly and see Jesus at the same time. And so the invitation is not an erasure of any part of your story, but a reorientation around who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, what does that actually look like to have this new birth, to receive this new identity? Well, first we're told in verse 12, it's to receive out of your family of natural descent a new family. Verse 12, all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be the children, plural, of God, the family of God. To receive Jesus is to receive a new family, one which, unlike the um, others that are just simply that, something that we're born into, but something that we grow up within, and something that, because it's for all the nations, both uh, includes and transcends and fulfills every ethnicity, every culture. It brings all the best parts of every aspect as brought about through the obedience to Jesus while leaving behind what might be of the flesh within your culture, your political party, any of those things. So it fulfills and transcends, and unlike our other family systems, while, or area tribes or political parties, as while there may still be an insider and outsider dynamic within the family of God, it is one with a wide open door and an invitation to all. One that we hold status as insider within the family of God with so much humility because apart from the work of God, we were outsiders. We all began outside of this thing. No one was born into it. It was a gift freely given. So we carry our insider status with so much humility and a deep invitation because this family invitation is for verse 12, but to some, to all people, to all who receive him. And so our invitation is that all might come and receive him. To walk in this new life is to receive a new family, to receive a new, a new tribe, a new culture, one that is made up from all the diverse walks of life and ethnicities and backgrounds and holds them all together, transforming them into the image of Jesus. Not, not, never leaving any of them out the door, but transform, like, like bringing them into the fullness of what it means to be human. So this is what it means to be born of God. What else does it mean? Not just to receive a new family, but to receive new desires. To allow the will of the flesh not to again be erased, but now to be imbued and empowered through the Holy Spirit. For there to be a new desire that wells up, which once again doesn't erase or cancel any of your desires, but aligns them and orients them to the work that God is doing within you and within the world. Where you're able to find, like I said a moment ago, that oftentimes you find as you follow God, as you enter into the story of Jesus, is your deepest desires are affirmed time and again, are met daily. And often it comes though through the denial of your loudest desires. The danger of most of our lives is we believe that our loudest desires are our deepest ones. And the invitation of the Spirit is to allow him to begin to form us to name, oh, this is what I'm actually after. This is what my heart longs for. I might be chasing it in this or this or that, but this is the deep need, and this is the one that has been met in the person of Jesus and is available to me on a daily basis. And so it doesn't mean that that little desire goes away, but it means that I don't need to hold it as my central core identity anymore. We receive a new will and a new identity. This is part of what John's getting at in verse 12, once again. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right. This is the word exousia. It's so fun to say. It's regularly translated as authority or power. So just think about them, that it's not just the right as though it's something that I've been born into. It's an inheritance. But it is also a power that I have to be a child of God. 
It's, it's, a, a, it's an authority that I have to become a child of God. It's not something that I have to work up within myself. It is a power that has been given to me to be able to rightly say yes to this, these new desires and to hold all of them within this deep reorientation to Jesus. So we receive a new family, we receive new desires, and we receive a new father. See, what's so interesting throughout the New Testament, in the midst of them working within a world that was largely patriarchal, is we would kind of, you know, we would want them to like, you know, down with the man or whatever, right? The primary way, though, that they subvert patriarchy in their day was by taking that social system and simply saying that there's no human man at the top of that system. But every single person individually on their own and not through some man as their mediator is now underneath the true head of the household who is the father. And so now all of us are responsible to think through the way that we perceive ourselves is my relationship with the father. The primary way that I self-express and give presentation of myself is myself as a child of the father. I process reality through the faithfulness and the promise of my father. And so this is a wildly new identity, which hear me is such good news for most of us because your identity is either rooted up either in your father or your mother or some other person or most often the opinion of yourself. And the great gift of having the true new identity that's based on the opinion of your father means that no matter what anybody else, even you thinks of you, there is a you are my beloved child and you I am well pleased that can silence all those other voices to wake up and live with that sort of existence and identity that is immovable and not tied to, the, to the, the wills and wiles of everybody that you might put it on or even yourself. To receive a new father, a deep intimacy, where once again, this is now I perceive myself, not through how I see myself, but through how God sees myself, how my father sees myself. And so I'm able to present myself to the world from a place of humble boldness and courage and peace because my identity is not something that I have to perform. It's something that's been given to me. And I process reality and my anxieties and my fears not as something I have to chase after, but as we just ended with the Lord's Prayer, my Father in heaven, give me today my daily bread. Forgive me my sins. Deliver me, right? Right? I live in light of the, which is a wildly different way than living. This is so different, a so different way of living that speaks to racial reconciliation, family of origin healing, your deep identity, right? All of these things. It's so different from the way most of us live that the primary metaphor that we get is it's like you're getting born again. It's like you're a new little human running around. And so this is what has been brought about. And so it is a, a new family. It's a new a new desires that well up from within you. And it's a new father who speaks his delight over you through the accomplished work of Jesus. And all of this comes not as something that you earn, something that you work up. There's not a retreat I'm gonna have you sign up for and we're gonna teach you some practice, right? There's not a TikTok influencer who's gonna give it to you. That's maybe like more to the point today. What, is, what does it say in verse 12? That to those who receive, he gave them the right. Give. He didn't pay them. They didn't earn it, is a gift given, a gracious gift given. But the fact that it's a gift means something. It infers something. 
Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas, gives this great little illustration. Um, I think about it uh, even when it's not Christmas time. So he thinks, so just imagine, okay, you're at a Christmas party and, you know, white elephant or whatever. And some, you got multi, two people that got pulled your name and they're bringing gifts for you, right? So you get down, you open up the first one. You open it up. Thank you so much. You open it up. And it's a book, giant letters on, on the cover that says, Overcoming Selfishness. Uh-huh. Right? And then the next gift, you know, you open it up and it's and it's a dieting book. You right, jeez. That's exactly right. Because because what we do, what do we all know? That those gifts infer something about what the giver infers about you. So to take the gift is to go, well, thank you, because indeed I am a selfish, overweight, like you know, like that's who I am. And at the very least, that's how you perceive me. So just notice that if what God is saying in the gift of what the new birth that Jesus has brought is a new family, new desires, and a new father, if that's the gift of Christmas or whatever that Jesus gives, is for him to infer that your current family, your current desires, and whatever man, yourself, or someone else is, a, is just a dead-end place for your identity. It's not going to get you where you want to go. Not only is it going to keep you from seeing Jesus, it's going to keep you from seeing the life that you've been made for. And so the gift for God to go, man, this is what humanity needs most, is a new identity, a new life. Not just a do-over and start again, but an entirely new person welling up from within them through the work of the Holy Spirit. If that's the gift that God gives, then it means, yeah, anything other than that is just a dead end. And we feel that. We don't know what to do with our identities. We don't know how to bring all these pieces together. I, I don't know where I was going to put this because I've been thinking about it all weekend after I finished up writing it. But just notice how even, even in our day and age today, we don't know what to do with the mass of different pieces of our identity anymore and which one goes first. Which one, what, what do you make the key piece of your identity? You know that if you put your job at the front, you're going to be miserable. And yet so many of us, we do it, right? Or do we put it second? Do we put job in front of education, in front of sleep, right? And me being healthy, is that being part of my identity and myself, right? We, we don't know how to properly orient each of these identity pieces. I was thinking of the prime, one of the best examples of the way that this takes place is um, Disney movies. I have a now seven-year-old, and so that's, that's my culture. All my cultural credit, like commentary stuff is now Disney princesses. But there's this really interesting dynamic where as we as a Western culture have begun to value... Um, like basically, you know, we came from princesses who were literally named Snow White to like now like princesses of color and bringing in their culture and their backgrounds, right? And their, their story, what's so wild is it, it's great, but here's what happens every single time because we're so individualistic as a culture, we don't know how to hold these two together. So every single new Disney princess movie spends five minutes being like, oh, look at the culture, the tradition of our family and our people, right? This is who we are. And this is like your identity to spend an hour and a half completely denying all of that as little Miss Princess goes off and asserts her individualism. So once again, as we have a culture which wants to bring your cultural, your ethnicity up a couple of notches, but not above individualism. So once again, just notice, this is the main mo this is the thing that you're going through. Why you feel so much tension as a human being right now is you don't know where to, how to orient your identity. Where does politics go? Does your politics go above family? Some of you are just at Thanksgiving. There's definitely some people who have done that, right? Where does your sexuality go? Where does money go? Where does your family, your relationships? Why do we have such toxic fandoms right now? Like, I'm, I'm coming out of Star Wars. I'm allowed to be a representative here for, like, these crazy Star Wars nerds. Why are they so toxic? Why? 
because it's become part of their identity. See, what happens when we let go of God being the center of our identity is not that it becomes, we just enter into chaos. We don't know what we are anymore. And so the invitation of the gift is God looking at humanity going, I know what you need most, and it is a dramatic reorientation of yourself. Not to get rid of any of this stuff, but to reorient it underneath the headship of Jesus. And that's the place where you'll find the life that you're looking for. So then the only question is, how do we do that? So like receiving and believing is like this inner transformation. How, how do I open myself up to receive that? Because again, it is the second birth, not something that you earn. It's a gift given. So how do I open my, my life and my hands to receive that gift? And to talk about this, we have to talk about virginity. <laughs> I know. Yeah, wow. You guys left the room so quickly. Where did everyone go? Um, just, just, just track with me for a moment, and I promise that this is going to be worth it because it's just, you can't get past It's Christmas time. Sorry. So notice, Matthew and Luke, in their Gospels, what is the great miracle of the birth of Jesus, of God being born to the world? It's the virgin birth of Mary, right? And, and all, just setting aside all of your questions, which, are, which have their answers, the mechanics and the historicity of all this, setting those aside for another time, just look back once again at John. Verse 13, when he describes the birth that we have from God, that's Luke. That's another one. Verse 13, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. So if Matthew and Luke are talking about how God was born to us and the way they define and describe, they tell the story is that it was a virgin birth. John picks up and goes, yes, and in the very same way for you to receive your second birth, as it likewise is, not of natural descent, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man. It too is a virgin birth. And so what this means is it's apart from our control. It's apart from our decisions. It's apart from our desires. It is something that, we, that, that, that happens apart from our control, apart from our, in a sense, even ownership. It is something that is brought about and worked within us. And so what that means is one of the primary examples then of how, what does it look like for me to receive this is by looking at Mary, is by looking at Mary. Luke, verse, um, or chapter one, uh, you can go to the next one there. So we're jumping right in the middle of the story. But then the angel told her, Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Notice the natural descent here. It's not, it's not a negation of it. It's a fulfillment of it all. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. It continues. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? Like she gets, she's like, this doesn't happen, you know? <laughs> then the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. This is hearkening back to John chapter one, when in the beginning there was nothing but the Spirit hovered over the waters of creation, bringing life out of the darkness. And once again, the Spirit's gonna do that again in a new creation work of Jesus. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, for nothing will be impossible with God. See, I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. So what, what does it mean to have what, uh, throughout church history, many have referred to as the virginity of the soul? And I get, maybe that's making you uncomfortable. I'm sorry, this is, it's in the Bible at this point. What does it mean to have this kind of receptivity 
Um, genuinely, I think one of the best words for this is this kind of consent that is open to the work of what God wants to do within our lives. It's not the absence of all of our identities, but just the receptivity. See, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. It's a receptivity to receiving a transforming work that's outside of ourselves. And it's a, it's a humble surrender to God. Whatever it is that you want to do within my life, I'm opening myself up to it. Whatever you want to do with all these, this mess of all these different pieces of my identity that I don't even know what to do with anymore. Whatever you want to do with them all, however you want to orient them. Think about Mary's life and, and the way that she perceived herself, the way that she presented herself and was perceived by others and the way that she processed reality. How did, what happened to her identity on the other side of this moment? In particular, think about the way that she was perceived by others. This is a big mystery, the big questions. There was an angel, sure, sure, Mary. No, it's God, uh-huh. See, this was her openness to, God, whatever you want to do within my life, whatever order this takes, whatever way I get perceived by others, I am perceiving myself. See, here I am, servant of God. May it be to me according as you have said. This is, this is how, this is it. How do you receive this new birth and this new identity? There's no way of working it up within you. There's no way of you going out and chasing after it. It is simply just getting to the place where you look over all the little pieces of your identity and what makes up you and getting to the place where you go, these are all part of who I am and yet I need something that brings them all together in a new way. And I know that that's gonna, be, that's gonna require something outside of me, someone other than me to do that work. To look at your anxieties and your fears and to begin to hold them with trust, to look over your questions and, and hold them with a, with a pursuit that's marked by faith as we seek to understand, like Mary. How is this gonna happen? You know that's not how babies get here, right, angel, right? It's not the absence of questioning and, and doubt, but, but staying in the space with them. And so the whole invitation is simply Mary's yes to God. How do you receive this new identity? It's, it's a yes to God. And so as we enter into Advent season, as we continue in this journey towards Christmas and into the new year, the, the invitation of today is just to look over the identities of your life. Genuinely, how do you perceive yourself? What's the primary framework that you use for thinking about how you're doing, for who you are? How do you present yourself? What's the primary way that you think through your self-expression? Who is the you that you're trying to express out into the world? And what's the primary framework that you use for processing reality? Those are the pieces of what make up your identity. And just to consider within those, is there any way, how might these be keeping me from seeing Jesus for who he really is? And in naming those, once again, not to deny, not to erase, not even necessarily to repent of them, but simply to say, God, I'm open to you reorienting these. For you to speak a new family over the natural, for you to speak a new desires, for you to speak your fatherly presence over each of them and allow them to take a new shape so that this being born of God may happen within me in this Christmas season. Let's pray.